So he had this idea of this, what we now call Dyson spheres, where a civilization could build something so large mm -hmm. that it will actually block part of the light from the star and radiate in the infrared. Right. Um, so I think this was the first proposal of a techno signature that was not mm -hmm. a radio signal. Episode 107, SETI's new tool, techno signatures. The Great Wall of China can be seen from space. Actually, it can't, but the idea that a civilization could build something large on a planetary scale that could be detected from interstellar distances was articulated first by author Olaf Stapledon in 1937 and popularized by Freeman Dyson in the 1960s. Known today as a Dyson Sphere, it's a megastructure built by an alien intelligence that captures almost all the energy emitted by its star. In this episode, Dr. Hector Socas Navarro explains we humans are not there yet, but the increasing density of Earth's geosynchronous orbit will become detectable in a couple of centuries. So not a Dyson sphere, but a ring or a belt he calls the Clark Exobelt may allow alien civilizations to detect humanity's presence over interstellar distances. In this episode, we discuss the opportunities for SETI to detect artificial structures like this at interstellar distances using the James Webb Space Telescope and the very large Earth-based telescopes coming online soon. Links to the resources we discuss are on this episode's page on the website. I started off our conversation by asking him about Tenerife in the Canaries, where he's based. It's really amazing because this island, the, the landscape changes so quickly. You drive around for half an hour and, and ah. you, you feel like you're in a whole different country. And in particular, going from sea level where most of the towns are, Mm -hmm. um, and you drive up the mountain and in just one hour you are you know above the even above the tree line mm -hmm. above the clouds and in this absolutely magic landscape uh, that looks like from another planet um, <laughs> it, it's really amazing yeah and for uh, astronomers you know i've always known about mount td and the uh, number of observatories you have there um which is one of the many things I could talk to you about, but I do want to talk to you about um, your interest in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but you studied astrophysics. Um, how did you get into SETI in the first place? Well, I would say it's, it's just a matter of personal interest. I, I have always been interested in the idea of life elsewhere in the universe and especially intelligence I, I think that's probably something we all share uh, it, yeah. it's very human like to ask uh, these questions about other forms of life other um, beings that we could communicate with and myself I think I, I, I was very profoundly influenced by um, by Carl Sagan when I was mm -hmm. growing up as a child I watched Cosmos 
I read the book. Um, I read everything that would fall in my hands written by Carl Sagan. Right. And, um, and, and he was very interested in all these uh, subjects and, and he was able to discuss them in, in such a uh, beautiful way, but at the same time in such profound and scientifically um, rigorous way mm-hmm. that it, it really, uh, I think that that has always been with me. And mm. when I decided to become a scientist, of course, I, I wasn't really thinking that I would be working on these fields in particular, mm-hmm. because, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, the 90s, SETI was not a popular research uh, topic. I, I would say it still isn't, but um, back then it was something considered almost hopeless. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if there's someone out there, it, it will be so, so far away that there's no, um, it will be virtually impossible that we could make any kind of contact. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, uh, <laughs> things have changed uh, a little bit and, and now there's a growing interest in this field and and I couldn't help but, um, you know, try to sneak a little bit into this field, uh, which I yeah. find so fascinating. And you're quite right about the um, uh, deep impact on uh, the futures of so many lives, including mine, that the work of Carl Sagan and his many books, including um, Cosmos and particularly Contact and the film that went with it, the um, um, it's a whole generation of, uh, I think, working scientists and engineers today who can probably trace their roots back to his work. And I'm sure every generation has its own um, origin story like that. But you're quite right, and it's something that I share. Just as an aside, I'm very interested in people. Uh, I think you're a bit of a musician. You do a podcast, and you're a director of the Museum of Science and Cosmos. That's a little right. bit about all three. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a musician by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. Um, right. But I I am interested. It's, it's something that interests me. But I've never had enough time in my life to devote mm. to what I would really like to learn, which is about um, compu- co- composing music, uh, music mm-hmm. composition. Um, that ah. that's a subject I find fascinating, and I've I've read a little bit about it and. Um, when I was young, I learned a little bit to play the piano and electronic keyboards just enough so that later with a little bit of help from technology, uh-huh. I could play around and, and you know, put things together. And uh, I, I, I do not want to say create, but, right. but you know what I mean. I think you can say create. Uh, so I, I think of you as a musician, somebody who doesn't do anything like that. So behind you, I can see a poster. Uh, coffee mm-hmm. break tell us about coffee break yes coffee break is a podcast that we make uh, me with some other friends and colleagues mm-hmm. um, we started doing it seven years ago in 2015 and um, it's uh, well it's peculiar in in uh, a bunch of ways first of all uh, we wanted to talk about the news in science so this, mm-hmm. this is not a podcast that you would tune to to learn something very basic about you know how stars are formed mm-hmm. um, instead it's something that we make every week and um, and we talk about the latest papers that have come out mm-hmm. or, or some other news that are out there so mm-hmm. 
it's it's more for people who are interested in in keeping um, up to date with what's new in in science in general, but especially in astrophysics and physics, which is what we are most interested in. Um, and and it's also peculiar in that we we try to keep it as as genuine as possible in the sense that it's it's, it's not scripted and it's a conversation among friends. So we just sit there and start talking, and sometimes we forget that people are listening. <laughs> And and sometimes we we get technical, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and and we've learned. At first, I was very worried about this, but we've learned that it's okay. That there's there's an audience who enjoys these kind of mm-hmm. of conversations. And sometimes you don't have to sort of explain everything at a very low level so that everybody can understand it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who already have a background and they know a lot, mm-hmm. and and they want something at their level and there's not a lot of outreach out there for people who already have certain background Mm -hmm. so we do not cater to the to the big public to to you know the 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 masses we're not looking for a great audience Mm -hmm. but we were surprised to see that there's still a lot of people uh who are interested in listening to our podcast just Mm -hmm. because there's not much um like it in that in that way that you know we, we are not going to break it down to mm-hmm. something so simple yep. that anyone can understand it at the expense of <laughs> lying basically <laughs> because yeah. then what you end up talking has nothing to do with the with the actual um uh, story uh, and then of course you as an astrophysicist um as a scientist the other participants uh of a panel uh, they're all scientists working scientists in this field so it's quite natural and it's pity actually i can't think of i mean all the podcasts that exist there isn't anything that i can think of straight away that deals with sort of um, science or space related news on a weekly basis uh, now um it is in spanish but you do have uh, little bits of it in uh, in, uh, in in english as well is that right Yes, it, it's in Spanish. It's, it's for for the um, basically the, our audience is um, listeners in Spain and Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, there is not so much content about science and technology in the Spanish language as there is right. in, in English yeah. language. So we thought um, that that would be a, a, a good market for us. But um, yeah, sometimes we have like interviews or conversations with other colleagues mm-hmm. uh, from other countries. And then we speak in English, which is the universal language. We were <laughs> talking about this earlier. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really like the idea of having a universal language that mm-hmm. all humankind can communicate. Yeah. I think we right. need communication. Um, yeah. and, and it's great that we can, that, that the English language can serve this purpose. So sometimes we have these conversations in English with, uh, with international colleagues and friends and of course when we put these conversations in the podcast we, uh-huh. we record them in advance and then we we put we add a voice over in spanish so that our audience can can follow right. it. Mm-hmm. but we also publish the original english audio because mm. a lot of people speak english and they would rather listen to the actual words mm. of our guests okay. rather right. than a translation which is never perfectly accurate so well, we, no. we also publish the, mm. the english uh, conversation you're the director of the Museum of Science and the Cosmos. Great name. Where is it? What do you do? And uh, uh, how long have you been doing it for? Well, I've been doing it for uh, a little over three years now. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's something completely different uh, from what I what I was used to doing as a scientist. Uh, it's, it's completely different. This is a museum that was um, built um, 
by a, a partnership between my my institution, the, the Institute of Astrophysics of the Canary Island, mm -hmm. um, in partnership with the local island government. Mm -hmm. I should say it's more like the, the island government in, in, collaborate, in collaboration with my institute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the institute will provide all the scientific um, advice and mm -hmm. and also the agreement was that one of the scientists from the institute will be the director of the right. of the museum. Right. But when the the previous director finished uh, his term, they asked me if because I had this profile, I, I like to do research. I had the podcast mm -hmm. which was uh, growing in popularity. So perhaps I, I would guess that for that reason, they thought right. I would be a good candidate to be the director of the museum. So let's move on to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or SETI. Now, um, I'm really uh, interested in speaking to you because you've written a paper quite not recently, but 2016 was it, I think. And there's been a lot 18. of developments uh, in this area. But let's just start off with the background. Uh, the SETI's search started with Frank Drake in um, 1960s, um, mostly is radio-based uh, searching for signals from extraterrestrial sources. And the idea is that if uh, there is a, a, a signal, radio signal coming from an extraterrestrial source, there must be therefore some intelligent life behind it that's generating it. Can you just summarize where we are right now with um, the SETI search? I mean, it's radio most of the time. Um, what's going on now? And are you actively involved in any SETI project as well? Uh, okay, so uh, it, it's. I think it's a very exciting time now for for SETI research because, as you as you mentioned correctly, it was this was started by. Uh, Frank Drake uh, was one of the pioneers in the 60s. Um, people realized that we have these these um, radio telescopes, um, and you know, radio communications were becoming increasingly popular on TV and uh, all of that. So it was natural to think that it will be also a, a good form of communication between uh, stars. And, and a lot of people started doing something that had, or not, not a lot of people, but some people started uh, doing something that had not been done before, mm -hmm. which, which was to uh, point these radio telescopes to nearby stars and see if you could pick up a signal from um, a, an intelligence trying to communicate with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And at, at the time, I mean, it, it might seem naive now to, to think that that there could be other civilizations out there just sending radio signals, but at the time we didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and you you don't know until you actually go out there and, and listen and, and, and see if there's something. So there were some very brave efforts in the 60s. Uh, mm -hmm. Frank Drake was one of the pioneers. There were also efforts in the Soviet Union, but we don't mm -hmm. know so much uh, about these efforts as we know from the uh, Western counterparts. And um, yeah, at the time, I, I think what people could come up with um, to, uh, in terms of how we could communicate with other civilizations uh, with mm -hmm. existing technology, radio signals was the, the only thing that, that could be um, considered. The only exception was this idea by Freeman Dyson, uh, mm -hmm. who was a very uh, famous physicist um, and a very brilliant scientist. He, probably should have won a Nobel Prize and, yes. and was very close. Um, but, but he was one of these 
brilliant minds who who was interested in many different things so so it's difficult to win a nobel prize if you don't focus on one thing and carry <laughs> yeah. on for 30 years doing the same thing yeah. but i i really liked uh freeman dyson's um uh, way of uh his his the way he understood science uh, and how he he liked to focus on some problems try to make some progress and then mm. Uh, go to some some other problem uh, try to apply new ideas so he had this idea of this what we now call dyson spheres where a civilization could build something so large mm -hmm. that it will actually block part of the light from the start and radiate in the infrared right. um, so i think this was the first proposal of a techno signature that was not mm -hmm. a radio signal right um, and this is to me sort of he this is sort of the the things that we are trying to to um, look for now mm -hmm. and it's it's really to me it's really amazing and it's a, a testament to freeman dyson's uh vision how he could start thinking in these terms in the 60s when everybody mm -hmm. else was thinking about radio signals one of the things i remember hearing a while ago was um, this new project cost it's, it's a budget with about a hundred million dollars called the uh, breakthrough listen project um i'm guessing it's still going on uh, are you aware of what the latest is with that yes um it's currently the largest radio search uh, that is um, being conducted the the history of seti um and this is very interesting we, we would we were talking earlier about carl sagan mm -hmm. he was one of the pioneers of seti and you mentioned the novel contact it's amazing how um, a lot of the history of SETI is reflected in contact, and he even anticipated uh -huh. some of the things. Uh -huh. um, in um, I, What I mean is the following. Um, when these radio searches started to become popular, mm -hmm. um, NASA um, created a project to, to do these searches, you know, on a large scale. Um, and so NASA actually created two different projects. One of them was using the Arecibo uh, dish in, in uh, Puerto Rico, which uh, was the largest and, and for a long time has been the largest radio telescope on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, and another one, another project would be conducted using the deep space network antennas that they used to communicate with space probes mm -hmm. in the California uh, Mojave Desert. Now, this ran into trouble first in the 80s. There was a senator called um, Proxmire who um, tried to kill this uh, project um, mm -hmm. because he thought it was an, a waste of money trying to, to communicate with little green men. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and, and here, this tells you how, how powerful Carl Sagan was at the time. He, he met with this senator and he was able to convince him otherwise. So he, he sort of saved these projects mm -hmm. by NASA. Mm -hmm. um, and then later on in the early 90s, there was another senator called Richard Bryan mm -hmm. who, um, who really shut down the whole thing down. And he did it. I, I talked to Jill Tarter once about this. Uh, we, we had a, a, an interview for, for my podcast. And she told us, well, something that is, is, is also known, but, but she, she said that she was surprised about how um, she, she thought there was something visceral, something mm -hmm. very, um, that, that he, he probably had some very strong um, emotional motivation behind mm -hmm. this 
uh, drive to not only shut down all SETI programs at NASA, but to do it in a way that it could not be rebuilt so to trash mm. everything mm. and and most of it was this was rescued it was picked up by the planetary society where mm -hmm. carl sagan was mm -hmm. and the seti institute that had right. been created recently they picked up some of these and and sort of continued doing on right. a much more modest uh yeah. with with more modest resources so the, the radio search continued for a while but um yeah in 1992 nasa um, stopped all involvement with this um, research. Mm. Some people think that there were probably religious um, motivations mm -hmm. behind uh, Senator Bryan's uh, decision, but um, I guess we'll never know. And mm. that's not so important, but what's important is that just as Sagan predicted in contact, mm -hmm. the government uh, involvement in, with SETI um, was terminated mm -hmm. and then uh, the search was picked up by private um, uh, private individuals, uh, mm -hmm. philanthropists, mm -hmm. or or some billionaires who had a profound interest yeah. in these issues, because this is something that we all share, right? right. So uh, this is what happens in contact, um, mm -hmm. and this is also what happened in real life. Um, right. In this case, we have this um, this billionaire called Yuri Milner, uh -huh. We say, I, I believe he's um, originally from Israel, or, or he, has, he has double nationality, American mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. Israeli uh, nationality. And um, he's a physicist, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. and, and he's very interested in um, pushing not only SETI, but also some other uh, sort of uh, initiatives that are, mm, you know, that, that resonate. Um, mm. <laughs> with with the you know with some of the deepest uh, questions that we can have but are still sort of in the at the frontiers of science mm. and and his he the breakthrough initiatives are uh, a collection of initiatives this uh, mm. designed to push uh, the boundaries of these um, uh, fields and, and mm. breakthrough listen is mm -hmm. the project to conduct a radio search you know, it's, it's the largest project that we have right now. And as you mentioned, it's $100 million over 10 years. So it's mm. only 10 million per year. If you think mm. about it, it's, it's relatively modest. And yet it's the most uh, powerful uh, effort that we mm. have conducted in SETI so far. I, I, you're quite right. You highlight a very important aspect, um, the um, social and political aspect of uh, doing this kind of uh, research. Uh, I think that a lot of the scientists in the early 60s and maybe even into the 70s would keep well away from being associated with SETI because it was not seen to be scientifically sound and professionally respectable. But today, I think it's fair to say it is a, a, a valid research area. And it's good to hear that uh, from what you're saying, the private individuals like Paul Allen and Yuri Milner investing in this. What intrigued me about your paper was the techno signatures. So from this point on, we're looking for signs of intelligent life, not listening to for radio waves. So can you just summarize what a techno signature based study for SETI would how how would that work? Yes, um, basically techno signature, it's a denomination that has been introduced recently as an analogous to the biosignatures that we look um, uh, or that we hope to look in the spectra of exoplanets. 
-hmm. one of the things that has happened it has it has revitalized the field of SETI is the, the revolution of exoplanet science. Uh, it has changed astronomy. We have discovered now over 5,000 exoplanets confirmed, plus many more candidates. And, and we are starting to uh, observe and uh, characterize uh, in detail these exoplanets. And we, we will soon uh, start to characterize their atmospheres in detail. Uh, and this is going to be a breakthrough because the atmospheres tell you a lot about the possibilities of life in other planets. Mm -hmm. So um, this is now a big, big uh, field in astronomy is astrobiology and the, mm -hmm. the search for biosignatures. This is wow. not fringe science anymore. Looking for extraterrestrial life mm -hmm. is not only respectable, it's one of the major drivers mm -hmm. where lots of resources are being put. One of mm -hmm. the drivers for the James Webb Space Telescope mm -hmm. was astrobiology um so searching for life not intelligence life in the universe is now a main driver in astronomy and lots of resources are being put into that so we have these biosignatures which are evidence that we can observe in an exoplanet that will tell us that there's life there um so some people thought that we could also look for techno signatures which is something that will um tell us that there is technology being used in an exoplanet and that would point to intelligent life. Now, radio signals are a techno signature, of course, but it's, it's far broader than that. We can, we can mm -hmm. try to look for other things. Um, and people, um, you know, when we talk about techno signatures, we can, we can be talking about city lights. Uh, mm -hmm. if, we, if we discover mm, nighttime illumination in an exoplanet, for instance, that is of artificial uh, origin, that will be a techno signature. Um, we could look for um, industrial pollution in the atmosphere. If we right. find uh, byproducts of combustion that could be pointing to industrial uh, use, and that will be a techno signature. Um, I, I don't know if that will be a desirable techno signature <laughs> to find <laughs> a lot of pollution in an atmosphere, but it, it will definitely indicate that there's someone there. So we, we talk about um, the great wall of China that can be seen from, from space. So what you're talking about in technosignatures is some evidence of some um, civilization that's capable of building something that's so big on a planetary-wide scale that it can be detected from a very uh, distant location. But the one that uh, interests me really uh, significantly, which is not something I had come across, is something called the Clark Exo Belt. Tell right. us what a Clark exobelt is. Right. Uh, this is something I proposed uh, back in 2018. That would be also something interesting to look for mm -hmm. is um, a large population of satellites surrounding a planet, mm -hmm. especially satellites in the geostationary or geosynchronous orbits in general. Mm -hmm. And I, I, refer, I refer to them using this Clark belt term, as you know, Mm -hmm. um, the Earth has a belt of geostationary satellites that mm -hmm. we sometimes call the Clark Belt. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a reference to Arthur C. Clarke, the, mm -hmm. the famous um, science fiction writer. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't know this, but he was not, on, not, not just a science fiction writer, uh, but also a, a very, um, I, I don't know how to say this, he, 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 had, he didn't have a formal education, I think, but but he had very uh, deep, uh, um, a very solid background in engineering and mm -hmm. physics. And, 
And he was a visionary thinker, uh, in my opinion. Um, and he had lots of very, very interesting ideas. One of his ideas was the geostationary orbit. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first people to propose that there is a special orbit in which a satellite that you would put there will take exactly 24 hours in, um, in going around the Earth. And therefore, it will be synchronized with the Earth rotation. And that means that it would always remain fixed on the sky. We would see it from the Earth's surface. We, it mm -hmm. would appear to us as fixed in the sky at a particular location. Mm -hmm. And he already in the 40s realized that this will be a very interesting place for, um, um, for, for to build a network of broadcast um, communication mm -hmm. stations. And, um, and there's an article that he has in a, in a popular magazine explaining this concept um, and he does it with, with very solid um, engineering uh, foundations. So because of that, this, this orbit is also known uh, sometimes as the Clark orbit. Mm -hmm. And we have on Earth the Clark belt. So mm -hmm. I, I thought that it would be fun mm -hmm. to refer to exoplanets, extraterrestrial planets mm -hmm. with a, a belt of satellites like this yeah. as a Clark exobelts. So what you're suggesting is that... Um in the hunt for um, Earth-like planets around Earth-like stars, or sun-like stars, you would find these um, planets which would have these specific orbits, and, and every planet would have this. We've been using that orbit here on Earth for quite a few decades now. Given their current population density, be detectable from stars or other planetary systems right now? Uh, no, not right now, at least with our technology. With our current technology, we would not be able to recognize a planet like Earth at interstellar distances. Right. That's the main problem that we have with technosignatures. Um, interstellar distances are so large that we, can, we cannot see a lot of detail. Um, so it, it almost requires a science fiction engineering to, to have something that we could observe from such distances. Um, so there's always a bit of science fiction into this technosignature uh, field. Now, when we talk about, um, so we need to look for superhuman technosignatures because human technosignatures are not visible. When I mention industrial pollution, we will need to have superhuman pollution in a way, much more than we have now on Earth in order to be detectable at interstellar distances. When we talk about geostationary satellites, we need millions of times more satellites than we currently have in order to be able to detect them with our current technology. Now, what's interesting about satellites is that our population of satellites has been growing and it's been growing exponentially, okay? And in the past, uh, six decades or so uh, since we started putting satellites in orbit, we, we can uh, observe that the population of this orbit, especially if you also consider the graveyard, because the, the satellites that we have in geostationary orbit, once they stop functioning, we push them um, into a slightly higher orbit that we call the graveyard, and there they remain forever, right? And we don't care about them anymore. Um, but eventually this graveyard will keep getting more and more populated. And perhaps um, that's speculation, but it could happen. I think it's something reasonable to assume that eventually this, um, this belt will be thick enough that we could detect it at interstellar distances. Now, my estimate is that if you extrapolate current human um, 
population of this belt, we would reach detectability with current human technology in about 200 years from now. So uh, there's always some extrapolation, uh, but, but 200 years is, is not a lot. Um, so this means that we, if we keep doing what we are doing in 200 years, we would be easily detectable mm -hmm. for people like ourselves mm -hmm. from the nearby stars. And so, so not just the um, population of the working um, geostationary uh, satellites, but also the accumulation over time of the dead non-serviceable communication satellites, which are pushed a little bit higher to make the critical space free for other newer usable satellites. So that density of the um, graveyard orbit would be detectable in your projections about 200 uh, years from now. Um, matter of interest, um, you know, we've <laughs> one of the other things we, we talk about when we're talking about uh, congested orbits is uh, the potential for satellite collisions and the debris they generate and the potential for the Kessler syndrome. So could your approach work uh, and detect a more denser, but perhaps filled with debris after multiple collisions um, uh, of um, space debris that's populated and generated a lot of debris in a particular orbit, I guess it would be in principle the same thing? Yes, uh, actually one, one of the criticisms that I received when I published that paper is that um, a lot of people uh, suggested that it, it's, it's not, that this could not happen, that it, mm -hmm. the, the, um, the Clark Belt could not get so populated because of the Kessler syndrome and other mm -hmm. problems. Right. But uh, I think we, we have to remember um, the Kessler syndrome refers to the low Earth um, population, the, the mm -hmm. low Earth uh, orbits, which is between, say, between 400 and 2,000 kilometers above the mm -hmm. surface. Mm -hmm. um, the reason is that, that that region of space is very, very crowded. That's where right. we have most of our satellites. Mm -hmm. But not only that, they're moving very fast because they're very close to Earth. Mm -hmm. The closer to Earth you are, the faster you're moving. And they're moving in random directions. Um, so collisions take place at 10,000 kilometers per hour right. or more. Uh -huh. Now, the geostationary orbit is different because it's much farther out. Right. That means velocities are lower. Mm -hmm. And also, it's, it's a synchronous motion. So mm -hmm. all the objects are moving synchronously, like a big procession. Ah, I see. Right? Right. So relative velocities between them are much smaller. Right. Uh, you mm -hmm. could have collisions, mm -hmm. but it's much more unlikely, and it happens at smaller velocities. Now, said that, um, satellite collisions actually help the technosignature in the graveyard mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're an alien civilization or, or even ourselves, we don't care about what happens in the graveyard. If the satellites, if, if, no. if the graveyard is so populated that satellites start colliding, we don't care. Mm -hmm. They are dead satellites anyway. Mm -hmm. And these collisions, they actually increase the opacity. They make the belt easier to see because yeah. a, a satellite, which is a compact object, all mm -hmm. of a sudden is spread uh, out in yeah. a myriad of fragments mm -hmm. and the visibility of all these fragments is larger than the original satellite so mm -hmm. by smashing satellites and ripping them or, mm -hmm. or destroying them into smaller fragments mm -hmm. you actually make the belt more visible from the distance oh, so it'd be even more likely that uh, these things would be detected 
how close are we with the technology of the James Webb and indeed other larger Earth-based telescopes, which are either online or coming online soon? How close are we, do you think, of detecting some form of technosignatures in exoplanets? Yeah, I think we are moving into a new era uh, now because for the first time with the James Webb and with the new large telescopes on the ground, like the ELT mm -hmm. or the TMT, um, even the, um, the MGT uh, in Chile, yeah. these, these new telescopes are so powerful yeah. that they would be able to detect human scale technosignatures. Um, right at interstellar distances. The problem is that we first need to know where to look. For instance, mm -hmm. there's a recent paper um, which suggests that with the James Webb telescope, we could detect human levels of industrial pollution uh, of, uh, in, in the Earth atmosphere uh, in nearby exoplanets, but that would require hundreds of hours of observation with the James Webb. Mm -hmm. Now, so that means you, you cannot you cannot look at a thousand planets uh, uh -huh. and see what you get because <laughs> they are not going to give you hundreds of hours of observation without a good reason for that. And, and the, the same happens with uh, ground-based telescopes. The, mm -hmm. These telescopes are like microscopes. Right. So they give you a lot of detail of a very tiny field of view. Right. So you need first to identify a candidate. And that's what we, uh, life is probably, um, uh, uh, rare, I mean rare, mm. it's, it's probably infrequent. I mean, mm -hmm. only a small percentage of planets will have life most likely and intelligence will be even more rare. Mm. So you need to really um, get data about a very large number of planets in order to get a candidate. And, and that's, I think that's what we are missing, how we can look at thousands of planets or perhaps more to identify one that is sufficiently interesting that we can then, you know, pull out the big guns and go for it uh, with everything that we have. That's that's the problem. How to identify a candidate? I think we still don't have an answer for that. The giant Magellan Telescope (GMT), the European Extremely Large Telescope (the EELT), and the 30-meter telescope (TMT). 30-meter telescope. That just sounds astonishing. So mm. um, I'm guessing within the next few years, some of these will come online. Yes, will you be involved in any of these projects specifically? No, uh, I, I, this is so competitive um, that, in fact, I, I don't believe that these projects will have a, a SETI uh, observations program unless, mm -hmm. like I said, there is some other clue or some other indication that would point out in a very strong way um, to a certain planet um, because we have, you know, these machines are so powerful that everyone wants to use them for other purposes. And, and right now, if we don't have a clear uh, candidate, um, I think they will not be used for that. Um, we, we first, like I said, we first have to identify a promising candidate first. And I, I don't quite know how to do this. Um, and that's the sort of things I, I am trying to think about um, with these things such as Clark Bells or mm. you know, some other way that we can identify a candidate with more modest means mm. Mm. That, we can, that we can apply to a large number of uh, targets. 
Well, if anybody's going to identify a target, a suitable target, I'm sure it's going to be you. Um, <laughs> you you're you quite right. It's spectacular time to be doing this kind of research right now. Uh, but for the time being, so I'll come back and speak to you again then, but for the time being, Dr. Hector Socas Navarro, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.